0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. My name's Pip Adam and this is episode 100. Um, yeah, so I just, uh, yeah, I'm recording this in Taranaki. i um, very grateful to be at writer Emma Hislop's house um, with Aidan Rasmussen, who was um, the first ever guest on this podcast. So it all seems quite fitting <laughs> and wonderful. So yeah, I just want to um, begin by just saying thank you to everyone who has helped out with the podcast um, uh, Yeah, all the guests that have been on the podcast um, But also all the people sort of around and about So people that have retweeted it and um, yeah, Liked posts Oh, I sound like a YouTuber now It's quite cool Um, But yeah, everyone who has helped out And everyone who's helped out technically as well um, Thinking especially about James Woods um, Very grateful to Brent McIntyre Who um, has written the music for the podcast Over the years And um, yeah yeah thanks everybody and also everybody who let me use their house for recording <laughs> and also um you know their office spaces and their libraries and yeah um big shout out to Nikki who let me re- let me rent rooms up there quite a lot so yeah thanks everybody i really appreciate it so most importantly, uh, this is episode 100, this is Elements 14 and I am speaking with Cassandra Barnett um, and we are talking about a wooden croaking frog percussion instrument. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful object to start our season on point. So um, when I first started thinking about this season, I was sort of thinking about point of view, um, but then I my thinking started to broaden a little bit. Um, because I was thinking point of view that the language we use around that often privileges sight um, and what is it to be in you know sort of like an ear of God or um, I don't know uh, a nose of God (laughs) those kinds of things so um, yeah I have sort of broadened it out much more widely to sort of talk about where we tell stories from I guess Um, I think that's what I think I'm interested, although, you know, what's wonderful about these conversations is that I get to chat to people, I get to listen to people, and my mind gets changed all the way, along the way. So yeah, the way that these begin, they always end up different. So I am speaking with Cassandra Barnett, who will introduce herself um, when... You hear the start of the chat. Um, I'm very grateful to Copyright Licensing New Zealand, who have helped fund this um, Element series. Um, Cassandra and I talk about a number of um, books and um, things, and you can see information about that, links to that, on our website, which is better-read.com. So yeah, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I loved talking to Cassandra. yeah i i'm very the 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 thing about this podcast is that really i get so much out of it and i learn so much and yeah i really love listening so yeah thank you very much and i hope you enjoy listening too thanks
1: How are you? Kilda Pip, I'm very well, thank you.
0: Oh, thanks heaps for having us. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um and thanks heaps for having this conversation about point of view. This is um the first in the series on point of view and I'm still nutting it out in my head <laughs> and I'm looking forward to a conversation with you about it. Um, do you want to start by introducing yourself?
1: Sure. Um okay, so he ho no Rokawaki ki Um, I come from Raukawa in the Waikato region, Um, a little marae called Pikitu which is in Te Wautu uh, just south of Putaruru. and um, on my mum's side I'm Pākehā with uh, all Irish whakapapa (laughs) (laughs) and um, there's also English and Scots and um, usual Pākehā mix uh, on my dad's side as well as the Maori whakapapa. Uh, but both my mum and my dad grew up in the Waikato, so yeah, Waikato is probably my hood. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, I mostly grew up in Tamaki and I've now lived in um, Te Whanganui for six or seven years, yeah, with my boy who's eight and a half now
0: wow yeah man time goes time flies oh, man. time flies time flies yeah um so <laughs> today what I thought we could talk about is I've sort of named this section um point <laughs> mainly because they're all p's so far but um <laughs> I just wonder what sort of thoughts you have around point of view like yeah oh oh my goodness <laughs> you bought a beautiful object. Do you want to talk about the object? Shall I talk
1: about the object? Yeah, that would be so Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, it's about point and point of view, but for some reason, the word I've been carrying around in my head is voice, mm. and no doubt these are not exactly the same things, um, but I guess voice is uh, one way that point of view is carried and uh, transmitted to the world and of course voice has many meanings within literary realms Um, but one of the things that i think about a lot as maori is the oral part of the voice or the oral audible the heard material voice um And although I don't feel like uh, an expert at all in the uh, relationship between the oral and the written, I am really interested in that. And anyway, so the object that I brought, um, thinking about the voice, and uh, for a moment I considered actually bringing my own voice as the object, (laughs) uh, and here it is, (laughs) Uh, but I didn't want to focus overly on the materiality of my voice, but I'm interested in those givens that we bring with us that are the things that we have to work with, no matter how we experiment and play, and you know, how we write. Anyway, I brought a small percussion instrument instead, which has a voice, and um, I'll play it for you. (laughs) Um, So it's made of wood, and that is the voice of the wood, Um, But this particular instrument is also in the shape of a frog. And um, the materiality that you hear is the materiality of the wood, but it does approach something um, with a kinship to a frog's voice. And so I like the thought also of this being um, some wood becoming frog. Mm, mm. Um, Because as well as the materiality of voice and the oral dimensions and the oral dimensions... um, I'm really interested in becomings as well and those sort of limits or liminal border zones where we attempt to transition from um, one point of view to another Mm. and um, yeah, what relationship that has with how things are voiced.
0: I think it's such a perfect object for so many reasons and I think this idea of materiality I think is really useful because um well to me because whenever I think about point of view um it always goes back to this very deep misunderstanding of like third person omniscient point Mm, of view mm. um as a kid I didn't read a lot but I, what I read, I think, was mainly people telling story. You know, mm. really, where I came from, it was a lot about gossip. So it was all sort of first person, <laughs> what I saw, reporting, or second person. You know, you you did this when you were a kid, kind of stuff. Mm. And then when I first read a third person omniscient narrator, I was just like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> where is this person standing? Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's what's interesting about this idea that it is making a noise from a place, mm, isn't mm, it? Mm. You know, and it, it um. I don't know like yeah like this idea of where we stand when we tell a story is kind of interesting to me totally
1: yeah um
0: I was thinking about
1: that I think you had mentioned earlier also the um relationship with art and point of view in art Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um of course in the you know there's a kind of grand western western tradition of painting um and other arts but you know Um, that huge attempt to paint as the eye sees, that evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years, Um, as if the pinnacle of painting was to create a representation that perfectly mirrored what one person's eye sees from where they stand, Um, that perspectival painting. And um, if you compare that with, like, Maori whakairo carvings um, and other Māori arts, Uh, there's what they call in art history an aspective
0: Mm, mm.
1: point of view uh, or non-point of view. So it takes the viewer out of the equation, the viewer who is the maker. Um, The maker is no longer centred, because in that Western tradition, the maker is centred, where they're standing and what they're seeing is what they're going to show in their painting and what they're giving us as if their own personal point of view is the most important thing. And in whakairō, in uh, this aspective mode, the actual, um, let's say, tūpuna or atua, whoever's being represented there, they are at the centre. And so there's not this attempt to create an optical illusion of a specific place that the viewer is standing. it doesn't work in that perspectival way but the character is their own center and they hold certain things that um, you know are significant um, symbols for them things from their story you know whether it's an object or um, you know a media or a plant or those kinds of things um, but it's not done in a way to suggest a standing point for the viewer they're just at their own center and then you the, you can walk around whichever way you like and construct their narrative, their story from the things you're given, um, but there's something beautiful to me about that letting them be at their own centre, and decentering um, the maker, and of course for literature, the writer. It's the you know the parallel thought is about decentering the writer, but without leaping to that omniscient universal type narrator, um, you still need to have a writer who acknowledges their subjectivity, like, that's part of it too. I mean, I don't want to kind of extend or overwork the sort of uh, analogy with Māori art in terms of contemporary literature, uh, although I think there's heaps and amazing richness to be mm. learned there. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think certainly for me, like in writing about art as a writer, um, I'm always looking for how to de myself, but not erase myself from the picture as if i don't exist as if i am capable of offering you know an absolute truth about the matter i've mm. got to position myself but not uh you know but with how you know how to position my own subjectivity but hold all the space for all the other possibilities to still be in the room as well mm. to still be in the space mm. so that i don't exclude mm. other possibilities and also don't exclude my own like, future possibilities, because I always feel as a writer, like, I'll probably change my mind tomorrow, you know, (laughs) yeah, so just keeping it very, um, not just located, like, located to place and time, maybe, um, or, yeah, like, what do you call that, like, a a very mutable, um, on their way somewhere, becoming kind of a, um, narrator, Mm. or subject of the writing, is sort of what I want to be, I guess that's for art writing anyway yeah because
0: I think um it never occurred to me before like I'm I'm often wondering what is writing about art for you know like Mm. I mean which is a you know like I mean and and not just visual art but I mean what is it to write about um writing you know what is it to write about song what is it to write about um you know, I guess, and then, you know, eventually I extend myself to what is it to write about the world. Um, but it, there is this interesting idea that it does um, sort of fasten a time or a moment, doesn't it? Like it sort of... Like quicken. Yes, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... Oh, fast and, like, hold to Yeah, yeah, like, hold to you know. yeah. And also quicken as well, actually. (laughs) Like, I mean, it does sort of... It brings energy around a moment Mm -hmm. because attention has been given to that moment. Absolutely. And I just wonder... You know, this is a stupid question because it's way too broad, but I just wonder what is the job of the art writer? Mm. And, I mean, I guess it shifts all the time as well, doesn't it? It's such a hard one. I mean, as someone who's been an art writer, like...
1: I don't know, for a decade of my life or something. Like, you know, PhD was on how to write about art, really. Mm. Um, And in my, like, former life as an academic, I was an art writer. Mm. Um, And now, um, I guess I've been able to step back sufficiently from the ways that academia um, constrains that, um and i just you know have become far more jaded about the um the the ways in which that institution is you know corrupt mm-hmm. and um the ways in which art writing is in the service of the global art system mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. all its mm-hmm. racism and sexism and capitalism and consumerist ideologies you know all the horror and so I've, it's been a struggle for me to uh, re-find a place for art writing um, while not wanting to serve that system anymore. Um, yeah, so what is, I mean, you know, if, if we can magically step outside <laughs> as if the, that all didn't exist, um, or if I step back to the time when I was less jaded and doing that PhD, I guess... Um, I felt like my role as an art writer was not, you know, I was thinking I was off on some radical new mission, as you do when you're doing your PhD. Um, I was trying to get away from this objectifying mm. way of explaining art and placing it back into the existing um, constructs of art history and aesthetics and stuff like that um, and and have a much more personal relationship with the work and uh, really delve into the in the moment um, felt perceptual and sensory um, experience of the relationship that the work gave me that that I had with that work and so I would really track again the very material um, like the touch onto the materiality of the art and the first things that that gave rise to for me and try to sort of track that uh feedback kind of um experience and sort of in my writing find ways to translate it from a um visual and um sensory um array of um you know matters into the written into literary Into literary form Um, yeah so but why why was I so obsessed with (laughs) it why was I so obsessed with that Um, I think I was trying to get away from an authoritarian uh, attempt to like I feel like a lot of art writing is sort of one up one upping on the art itself and I just wanted to let the art be and help to transmit the experience further by seeing how I could translate it into writing. It was, maybe it was as much as anything just a, a exercise in constraint-based kind of writing, like mm-hmm. how to generate form. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, what if I take these um, material percepts of the art but ask myself, how do you do that in words? Um, what will that create as a piece of writing? And, yeah, it was a kind of handing an awful lot over to... I mean, I only chose artists I like and. Liked and artworks, artworks I liked. I wouldn't do that for artists I didn't like, and that in itself is maybe a problem. In that I like, I was always not wanting to do critique, not wanting to judge, like moving completely away from judgment. And so it means that I never engaged with works I didn't like or were bothered spending time articulating why I don't like stuff, um, and that can sometimes be a little bit of a trap as well, because then you're just in this funny. I don't know, like, I don't want to judge, but I don't want to be uncritical either. Mm. You know, you get in this funny loop of just writing about what you like and um, perpetuating uh, what you like. (laughs) Um, And you're going very deep into it, but it can maybe get a little bit solipsistic or navel-gazing or that kind of thing. But on the other hand, if you're doing that for artists who you feel don't get enough airtime... Who are doing amazing things, and for all the reasons of the racism and the sexism and the institutional biases, they don't get a look in. Then um, it's probably worth it in itself to just be extending what you, um, the awesome things that you think awesome people are saying.
0: Mm, yeah, mm. that word. Um, I just want to pick up on that word authority Mm. because it sort of has author in it and Mm -hmm. I was thinking (laughs) I was just see what you did there uh, (laughs) it's an exceptionally bad segue Um, but I was just thinking about what you're talking about in a way is that I think that the author has been kind of the elephant in the room Mm -hmm. whenever we've tried to um interrupt writing or um you know, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like, any time I've tried to, um, you know, like, mess with the canon or do something a little bit different in writing, it is, there is that problem for me that I'm in the room, you know, like, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, I, and that's what I love about the object that you've chosen, like, this idea that um, something can be a channel for, voice if you know what I mean something can be and I think this is why I'm always happier working collaboratively I you know I really believe in kind of um I don't know like I've I've always been interested in things that are made by many people rather than Mm. things that are made by singular people but the reality is that you know often I am working by myself and I just wonder like You've done some amazing things to think about. You know, I love the way you're talking about, um, you know, that balance between, you know, saying who I am but also not, you know, it's me, 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 me. (laughs) And I just wonder, like, what sort of experiments have you made in sort of a, yeah, like, can you think of examples where you've attempted that and,
1: yeah. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I could talk about... Um, maybe the experimental piece that I did in Black Marks on yeah. the White Page, yeah, yeah, yeah. which came out of that PhD, actually. it's Yeah, it's interesting that we're talking about the PhD, which is so much a theoretical... Mm. Uh, like, before I dove into trying to do fiction and poetry and all those other things. But it is where it has come out of for me. Um, and in that experiment, I was really struggling with the fact that um i was writing a phd about art in english but i was looking at art from aotearoa um looking at artists whose works are based in this whenua and i um you know was on the journey that i am still on of learning my real and decolonizing and um i mean a journey that the phd really kind of sharpened and um Kind of gave me a big kick up the backside, really, to do that properly or get on with it. Um, and so I was like, well, I I felt paralysed, I guess, by writing in English and having this real background in, in philosophers in English and theorists from the Western canon and all of that. Um, and yet, writing about works that have come out of the venua or depict the svenua and um, like how to kind of bridge that massive gap. And so I uh, wrote some pieces that responded to a series of artworks um, that were on uh, all all, um, video works made on whenua and the Taranaki and the works were by Alex Monteith. Um, Mm. And I was just thinking about that whenua. And it's funny, like even now I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't have really done that even. Like I'm not from Taranaki, you know. Uh, It's not really my place to speak back for that whenua um or it's not really speaking back whatever it is and but anyway what i did was i um constrained my writing by only using the letters in the maori alphabet but writing in english so i was writing in, in an english that couldn't use s or l um or v or uh what is there what, there's like nine Nine, eleven letters that you couldn't, couldn't use. Um, 16 letters. <laughs> Pardon my maths. <laughs> um, and, and then trying to write as these um, atua, as papatuanuku, the, the atua of the sea and the land and the sky. So papatuanuku, ranginui, tangaroa. Um, but knowing that I couldn't really speak as them, like I didn't have the reo, I was already doing it in English. So kind of doing this thing to my voice and my language by constraining. Kind of trying to reach back to the orality. Like, what are the things the mouth can do in Māori? Te reo Māori. And what if I speak English but only letting my mouth do the kinds of things that it can do if you're speaking Māori? Ah, Sort of attempt to trick my way into a more Māori voice. Um, But of course at the same time generating a totally different voice that's not Māori at all. Um, and I do think, I mean, that's a kind of a truth for me about decolonisation is that we're not, we're looking back, but in order to go forwards and in order to create new ways of being, there's no, you know, it would be a fantasy to think we could go back and be in the old way of being. Like, for me, that's a fantasy. I'll never, that's, you know, too big of a bridge. Um, too much is lost, too, not enough time in a lifetime, all of that stuff. You just can't really go backwards like that, but you can look back, listen back, be inspired, listen really well, you know, but then you're always moving forward and creating a new way that's relevant for you now. And so that voice that I created, which is kind of strange, very strange, um, has got all of me in it. Like, I still, like, first of all, I did that coming out of my place of kind of pain and wanting to sort of mangle my English a bit um, and sort of hamstring it or something. And um, the ways that I told those stories, of course, were only based on my limited knowledge. Like, there's just all my limitations in it. Um, And at the same time, my weird intellectual kind of ways of experimenting. Like, there's so much... Like, it's an attempt to really, really escape myself. uh, But it's more me than ever (laughs) at the same time. Yeah.
0: That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking. Like, the thing that I love about this is that that's exactly what it is, isn't it? It's like, at one point, it needs all my attention, you know what I mean? And, and more concentration. But at the other hand, it's being controlled by this greater rule, yeah. you know? And I think that that feels really similar to what you were talking about before, about that thing of either being, you know, being there but not being there. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's quite an incredible idea. And this... This kind of, I think what's also interesting about that when I think about your um, work is that it's this sort of, um, it's always scary to tell someone about their work in case Go you're wrong, but just, just this idea that, um, like if you think about an essay as a, an attempt at, what mm. I really love about your work is that often there are these ideas that you're coming at, not worrying too much about the genre, if you know what I mean, like it's like I'll have a look at it over here and then I'll have a look at it over here and like I often think of your work as like this one big book, you know what I mean, and like we'll sort of come at it this way and then we'll see what happens if we go here and um, where I feel like we're headed towards is something that we've talked about is maybe some kind of dissolving of any of those genre boundaries at all, eh? Like, this idea that, um, you know, like, fiction can have non-fiction in it, and, um, you know, poetry can have narrative, yeah, obviously that's a silly example, but Mm. do you want to talk a little bit about, yeah, how you're thinking about that today? Okay, yeah,
1: um, you're so right. I am all, trying always like to dissolve, escape, explode mm. <laughs> the genres and the forms. Um, I, I, you know, it's like some knee jerk, very like base impulse in me to not be constrained. I mean, I love constraints, the artificial ones, mm. but mm. to not be constrained by the given ones, the mm. you know, the conditions that we've been handed. Um, like, oh, what? The options are a novel or an essay or a poem? <laughs> what? Like, that's... I'm only allowed to do one of those things. <laughs> um, no! <laughs> like, my whole being just rebels. Um, and I've been always, like, in all my s- studies and stuff, like, just stubbornly interdisciplinary. And I do 100% sub- subscribe to the um, the kind of truism that you've got to know your discipline before you can be interdisciplinary with any, um, efficacy. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably my Achilles heel in a way, because I've, uh, not gotten to know any of my genres very well. I mean, I've really, I'm a pretty late in life starter on trying to do fiction and poetry and stuff. So, you know, there's just not having spent a lot of time yet, and not having a lot of experience to build on, um, mm but I'm um, giving it a shot, and um, I've always felt like I've had them a bit in the essays and the non-fiction that I was doing previously anyway, like, yeah, I was always trying to break it and let myself make stuff up, have fictional elements in there, have voices that weren't uh, this supposed authorial voice that is me, the speaker of the nonfiction, fiction um, and... I am more than ever in that situation, like at the moment I've been doing paintings and I've been making lino cuts and I'm really pretty bad at all of these things, but I can't help myself, um, and it's very much like, I guess I'm sort of rather, you know, like maybe some people are natural storytellers or natural poets or whatever without wanting to over essentialize those things, um, but I think I'm like a concepts person. And I mean, certainly that's been my training and it's pretty much trained in for life, (laughs) that philosophy stuff. Um, And so I'm always trying to come at ideas and trying to find the way to express the idea and not just the idea. I mean, that sounds just as if it's a cerebral, cerebral abstract exercise, but I actually am talking about like my own very personal knots of life, you know, like how do I articulate this, um, struggle I find myself in, you know, all the things, like, I feel like I'm so caught between so many, um, identities, uh, you know, as a Maori who was raised Pākehā and is also Pākehā, um, but, and then I've got a son who's African, and, um, I've, you know, lived an academic identity, and I've travelled heaps, and so, I don't know, I've got lots of senses of alienation from my own whenua, and there's just... Such a sense for me of being in between a lot of, um, yeah, identities. Like, identity is such a misnomer anyway. But I'm always trying to straddle a lot of worlds and trying to find a language for me and a form for me that can articulate this reality. And uh, if I go too much into any one of them, I begin to feel like a faker. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that, tr- trying to just do that thing according to that thing's own, like set of ways and rules and stuff i feel like i've left a lot of myself behind and what results um is you know people are going to see straight through it anyone who knows me is going to be like you're lying (laughs) and i don't want to be a liar like i really want to try and bring my whole self um as evolving and fluid and you know becoming as that is uh and it's i guess it's that fluidity and um, constant metamorphosis of my own experience of self that I want to try and bring into work. And the way that I do that is to keep reaching for new modes of expression. Um, and although I'm not very great at any one of them, I do sometimes feel like when I bring enough of them together in a certain assemblage, something does crystallize. And so that is my form or my genre. It's some kind of multi quite precarious assemblage um, of pieces which might have bits that look like poetry and bits that look like sound like fiction and then bits that sound like non-fiction um, but of course there's such western mm. um, definitions and I don't you know if I want to come from Tao Māori we didn't have any of those and as far as I'm concerned um, that means I don't have to um, I don't have to speak as though, um, those are the prior existing things and now I'm breaking with them, you know, I can instead say, ah, I'm reaching to another place where we always had what you might call a merger and a mingling of fiction and non-fiction and poetry, but for us was a totally different thing, because it didn't, um, include your definitions of truth and falsehood, and I feel like that's really at the heart of a lot of these genres and definitions. You know, fiction, non-fiction, like there is a truth and there is the not-truth.
0: <laughs> it's like, wow!
1: <laughs> oh my God, who came up with that? And how do you know which one's the truth and which one's the not-truth? Um, and anyway, we know, of course we know. Like and the, All the philosophers I ever studied were the ones who were way beyond all that anyway. And we know that fiction gives us plenty of truth and mm non-fiction gives us plenty of uh, (laughs) not-truth, you know? And so, uh, most writers are way ahead of all of this. I mean, the writers that I like, I feel like we all know that it's a a myth. We, 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 the decent ones who know. (laughs) Pardon my (laughs) wees. Yeah, so I just want to write from that place. Like, there are many, many truths, and... Um, many. I am many, many voices and uh, beings, and um, the ones that want to come out and need to come out in this
0: moment are gonna come. Was <laughs> that a bit ramble? I <laughs> love it. Oh my god! I was just <laughs> thinking. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing, and it might be my projection, is that part of what makes this work, like part of what makes, um. Because it is, it's the the struggle is part of what makes it work. Like the trying to exactly like what you were saying before, like trying to put image into words or trying to, um, you know, work in these um frameworks that are outside experience, you know, or you know that kind of thing. Part of the reason that it works is that struggle, and I also think th- this is something. You know, at the moment I'm writing something and I realize one of one of the things that adds to that problem is the anticipation of a reader mm. and i'm wondering how Yeah, like that part of the engine that drives the writing is an attempt at a conversation, you know what I mean? Like I used to think, oh, I should write not thinking about an audience. But I think Mm -hmm. part of it is around conversation rather than, you know, projection and broadcast. Mm. (laughs) You know, most of it for me is about, you know, I imagine a reader thinking, oh, why does she think that? Or, Mm. you know, and I... I quite like that for myself, and I think that that's often one of the missing links when we talk about point of view, you know, that we are placing the reader in a position in a way, you know, we're getting, if we're writing fiction, or even, you know, visual arts to a certain extent, and in, in, um, the, you know, the, the, the sort of audition kind of, you know, oral side of things, oral side of things as well. Um, one of the attempts we're making is to place that person in a position to the events that are taking place. Is that something that's interesting, or is that something you think about? Or Yes, I think
1: about the reader a lot. Mm. Um, and I I mean, you know, to get to the politics of it all, um, there are... Uh, I hate to sort of... I, I hate to essentialise. Things, people, cultures, races, um, but you know, there are to, to 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 go ahead and be a little bit um, oversimplifying about it. <laughs> there are Pakeha readers, there are Maori readers, there are Black readers, there are Black um, African readers, and then there are Black from Aotearoa readers uh, and Asian readers. And I mean, all of those are terrible oversimplifications. Mm. Um, but I. Like, this is what keeps me up at night, definitely what keeps me up at night is worrying about whether I am excluding any of them when I'm writing and who I'm excluding and how to not exclude them um, while also being true to who I am, what I'm capable of, where I stand, what I know, and um, true to, uh, more to the point, true to what I don't know, mm, all that I mm, don't know. Mm, mm. Um, and you know I worry like how can I write something I, I want to make sure that you know above all else my own son's not excluded in what I write um, and yet of course I don't have his experience either and so how do you do that how do you as a writer um, reach out to audiences whose life experience is different from your own um, and I've been thinking about this a bit in the lead up to this conversation as well. Um, You know, this thing that gets called writing the other. Mm. And I've been thinking about that phrase, like I don't really like it. (laughs) And quite apart from not liking what it stands for, um, I feel like what the phrase does is it already assumes that the other is other.
0: Mm. Writing Mm. the
1: other, who is other. (laughs) Um, As if that part is a foregone conclusion And I feel like what if we were de-othering writing or um, writing as if there were no other Um, and which is not to deny different experiences um, but I guess writing as if you are friends with or befriending and often I think like this is something that means I'm very very slow especially in the fiction it's hardest in the fiction. Very slow to write, because every time I go and try to (laughs) write the other, uh, write characters that are of different cultures, ethnicities, experiences from my own, um, it's such a um, point of concern for me that it slows me down to a standstill. And the thing that I keep arriving at again and again is that if you're going to write these people, you better have befriended them first. And I kind of mean in real life. (laughs) Not just in my writing life, like in my head, in my imagination or something. I mean in real life. Like, if you're going to write people, I hope they are people that, you, you know, are in your life and you know. I don't mean, like, just put the people you know as characters in your book. But, you know, have friends from all the walks of life. Go into, the, you know, if there's areas where you don't know people go into your discomfort zones or whatever it is, how are you going to break down the barriers that you somehow have created mm. or that life's created for you? I mean, you know, we're all stuck in this shit thing. We didn't, it's not all our fault. Um, but we can work to break it down. Mm. And so that's made me very slow at writing when I realise I'm trying to write characters that I don't know well enough yet. Um, and I want to. Oh, I think the person I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately, is Casey Lemon. His book "Heavy," mm. um, which of you know, I've read quite a lot of sort of books that are memoirish lately, and there's something about his that is just so full of aroha. Like he's writing so many problems, and I feel like he calls out. Um, He doesn't call out at all, like he just loves, he just loves on his people, but in the process of his writing, he's shifting away from a lot of um, things he doesn't want to do in that writing and, you know, doesn't want to demean his people, but wants to acknowledge the points at which they have failed themselves, but the way he does it is never, ever, ever criticising anybody, but except for himself and owning his own failings. And maybe those of some of his immediate whānau, you know. Um, And I've also read him talk about wishing he could take back some of that stuff. Because, you know, I guess it's pretty exposing for a few people. But, I mean, to me the main point is that he writes with so much love. So much love for everybody. Even those that really failed him. And especially for those that he's really failed. And I just feel like there's something in that that's um, really key to uh, how, we can, how we can write people. Um, and I also think about that book, um, Between the World and Me, um, Tony Hissey Coates, and how he talks about white people as, uh, he talks about the people who think they are white, which immediately does away with the essentialism and just talks to whether um, people are buying into that myth or not, that myth of themselves but which offers up the possibility to not buy into it. It offers everybody the invitation to be part of the breaking down, to be an accomplice in that. Um, So I find that very open and inviting and just so generous. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I guess those kinds of writers, I'm like, okay, I need to learn from these guys um, about how to write um, all... um, all my others don't want to say others, but you know all my all my people, um, with love and truth, the other thing Kesemon says is you've got to find the points where you want to lie, and that's what you need to write. Mm. Write the things where you want to lie about it. the really difficult stuff. and you know, it's like this, especially now in this day and age, I mean, the moment we're living right now and the place we're living it's hard there's a lot of unsafety like we all feel terribly unsafe and um, there's a lot of calling out going on which kind of has to go on Um, but it means that everyone feels very unsafe and I'm just like how can we do this with enough love but enough bravery and um, it's got to start with ourselves And so I feel like when I'm trying to write the others... uh, Sorry, I'm going to bring one more person in, (laughs) into my mix. The other person I'm always thinking of is Claudia Rankin, who says, what are your desires when you're trying to write about other people, other races and cultures? I mean, it doesn't have to be race and culture. It can be ability and gender and sex, like all the sexualities, all the things, all the differences. But what are your desires when you try and write about them? And I, and that's like, for me, that's somehow linked to what I get from Kisi Lemon. Like um, I've got to be wanting to work on myself. I've, my desire has got to be to see what I'm bringing to the table and its shortcomings and expose those. If I'm going to talk about my relationship with others, what am I bringing to the table and um, what can I do about that? And so to, circle the whole thing back to where you started on the point and um yeah the point of view that you write from a point the point is, is such a funny word because it's it's a relation isn't it mm. like when you're mm. writing characters in a book um and you're thinking about that uh, implied reader and um who you are writing towards writing to um it's not really a you and then a them it's a relationship it's always already a relationship. And what is the mode of relating that you're bringing into your writing with you that imbues your point of view? How are you relating to uh, your narrative, your characters, your, your readers? Uh, how are you involving them? And that's really fucking, pardon me, challenging. <laughs> 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 because I feel like that really, like, it, for me, forces me back to shit. How do I relate in the world? And it forces me to look at my failings as a relater in the world but that's the point at which writing can really become something that's really actually helpful in the world like if it can help me address my own shortcomings as a friend that's probably the best work it can do and if I can bring that into the writing so that others can also um, experience that attempt to shift how we relate well I suppose that's best i can hope for (laughs) oh
0: my god thank you so much like because like when like recently i've been trying to work out untangle a lot of what you've just talked about and like i keep coming back to these models of you know like post-structural focalization and all that and i realize now that they uh yeah there's something about them which demands a um it almost feels like a mathematical thinking, if you know what I mean, like it takes out all these other sort of aspects of myself, you know, and like, yeah, like just thank you for bringing love into the room i think I think that 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 is one of the keys that's been missing when I've been thinking about this, you know, like I um yet everything you're saying um you know I can sort of then translate back into ideas of where is the author in relation to the narrator, where is the, um, you know, what does the narrator know, what does the reader know, you know what I mean, like, I feel like um, what you're saying has immense practical value as well, if you know what I mean, and I think that's what's so great, is that I think that sometimes when we're talking conceptually, you know, like, I think, I don't know, like, we're not kind of what I really like and I've always liked about talking to you is that I feel like we're never sort of talking towards an answer and mm. answer mm. one answer mm. but I feel like it grows and changes something in me that means that when I go back to my writing I've got a new way of being with it which I think is really really useful um you've sort of answered my questions around um sort of like thinking about these things while we're writing I wonder, do you have anything to talk about as far as writing, you know, like when we first met you were writing what we were calling I think a novel at the Mm. time, do you want to talk anything about that transition because Mm. like that was a massive world that spanned you know (laughs) thousands of years, lots of people. (laughs) yes yeah you know, it was i I mean it's still one of my favorite books I've ever read, and I know you hate it when I say that I'm sorry, but um, I just wonder, like do you have any thoughts around the what's what what um what was interesting what piqued your curiosity about writing um an in, inverting column you know like mm-hmm. a novel you know <laughs> I guess
1: it was something I had never tried mm-hmm. um and Oh, you know partly like I was at a crossroads in my life <laughs> I'd like fallen off of this academic career I was you know unemployed and not sure what I was doing and all of that and I'd spent so much time writing non-fiction essays even with all their experimental mm. crazy aspects that they always seem to have in them um and always quite a subjective attempt to bring in subjectivity and stuff but I was like, I know I want to keep writing. I no longer have to write this academic thing. Um, I'm free. (laughs) (laughs) What does one do when one's free? One writes a novel. (laughs) 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 Um, Well, you know, I went and I applied to the IML and I got in to do the MA and I opted for fiction just because it was something totally different. Mm, mm. Um, I think I didn't know, there was obviously, I had no idea how that was going to be in practice. Um, and of course I had tried to write bits of fiction like in my youth and stuff but not with any commitment and here I was now being asked to come up with a project for a year and that's you know that's what you have to do and uh, and I just came in with the way I am a multiplicity of voices and times and modes like all crowding and clamoring in my head just because this is this is my lot (laughs) I am fated to be uh, (laughs) overburdened with complexity. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, okay, well, it's all got to go in because this is my stubbornness. Um, And so even though I was like, okay, I'm going to try and write fiction, of course I was immediately like, but I'm going to try and break fiction, (laughs) even while I don't even know what it is yet. So I, yeah, I uh, freighted in lots of different times. It was very much an Aotearoa novel, Mm. and it was very much about my struggles with... um, Identity and uh, decol and um, Yeah, sort of my I guess this triangulation I have between Te Ao Pākehā, Te ao Māori and Te Ao um, Rwanda, which is my son's um, other turanga um, and Wanting to figure out how to write that kind of multiple experience into a novel um, or in a fictional way Um, you know unfortunately well I still just didn't even know how to write anything (laughs) so yeah it's a bit all over the show but so I tried to have lots of characters lots of voices and I wanted to I guess I think that underneath it all there was a worry about what's happening with us if we over essentialise like I think we're in a moment of strategic essentialism Mm. and it's necessary for a lot of reasons Um, but you know having i don't know it's not you know you can't compare situations no situation is the same as any historical situation but i had done a lot of reading of um you know through things like um the uh, negritude movements and um um pan-africanism and you know the ways that other Um, marginalized peoples have worked to um, empower themselves, and it's often through solidarity movements and um, coming together across differences, across diaspora and all that kind of thing. Um, But I read my Gleason and my Creolization and my you know, know, all the stuff about how that essentialism has got to be temporary. Mm, It's a strategic mm. thing, it's not real. Mm. Um, And anyway, so in my um current time here i worry about what will happen if we essentialize any of us too much in in our cultural identities i mean we're many identities but you know so i guess i was partly projecting a future where um i was trying to imagine what might happen if through some crazy circumstance um these peoples were exploded into different configurations with each other and then found themselves stuck so and of course this is very much within the environmental crisis as well Mm, mm. so I imagined a big apocalypse (laughs) and then leapt forward to a time when we had lots of micro micro communities who were kind of bunkered Mm. and had landed the way that landed and had to make make a go of it with each other Uh, and so I had a kind of a Maori um, pa that had seized the moment and were able to try and um recreate um a te maori um space going forward um but there were also other spaces with all sorts of different groupings of people of you know and cultures and each kind of forging a slightly different um flavor of a path forward some more hybridized dodgy word but some more hybridized, some more monocultural, but they're all there. And I guess I'm just, I was, you know, like, I worry when we imagine one future and all try and exclude everybody else from our own particular imagining of how we think things should be. It's dangerous. It's always dangerous. And it doesn't really matter who you are. You know, it's approaching fascism. And I've got a really, really huge allergy to things that look and feel like fascism <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's not to be confused like power is massive in this, not to be confused with, I mean it's not fascism if you're a marginal group trying to decolonize, for example mm-hmm. you can't call that fascism but you've got to um, I think you've got to be really savvy about the strategic part of what you're doing and understand that you've got to take a long view and have the next parts of the strategy worked out as well before you lock yourself into something too fixed, because then you're not doing your own people any favours. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if that... I mean, that's just sort of the ground swell of the things I was worrying about when I started to plot out this novel that was Mm. in the future with many many peoples and groups. Because
0: I think that was one of the most interesting things for me about the novel as far as point goes, Mm. is this idea of speaking into the future and, like, you were incredibly good at and i think this goes back right to the start uh, you know with the um with the with the work that's in um the anthology there's a way that you can elicit language and voice to sort of produce this idea that we know that we're looking into the future we're not you know this isn't a future that's come you know there's a um, I don't because it doesn't feel tentative, right? But it's not predictive either, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and I think that's it's a speculative, really, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is a really interesting, um, you know, that's a really interesting thing as far as point goes, you know what I mean? Like, how to um, build in, and I think that you're right, is that it does have something to do with voice, it's like that's what I think like, to go straight back to the frog. It really does sound like a frog, though. But, um, you know, that wonderful thing where, you know, this is, it's the voice of the wood. When I look at it, I see a frog. How much is that telling me that that noise is a frog? You know, all those sorts of things. And I think, I guess, maybe just to, you know, like, we've been talking for a long time and I want to let you go, but I just wonder you said that transformation interests you in that way. You know, like, do you want to yes. just talk about okay. anything you want to talk yeah.
1: about? Then? I mean, I guess in the novel, there's a sense of they're all me. Mm. They're mm. all uh, different expressions of parts of me. Um, and if I can just say, this relates to my thinking about the so-called writing the other thing as well. Like I think um, it works when we are finding the so-called other in ourselves, um, becoming um, those aspects of ourselves um, more than if we are projecting that other as a pre-existing um, thing outside of us over there like we've essentialized that already that other being and we're trying to leap over and ventriloquize some voice that is not us you know, I think um, we have to relate we always have to relate that and find it within ourselves we are so bloody um um rich and multifaceted as people all of us you know and i think we need to um celebrate that and dig into that dig deep into the resources and reserves that we ourselves all have got our own nuance and find um the others in us and so i think i'm always trying to write towards um it's half writing from the many others i feel inside me and it's half trying to write towards um, what I want to be, but in a way where as I go, I'm questioning that desiring. Um, like, you know, if I could be really crude about it, I want to be more Māori. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know? Mm. I want to be more Māori. Like, there's so much beautiful um, I mean, you know, to our Māori, it's so beautiful. And if it's allowed to be whole and coherent and, you know, if you're in spaces where tikanga is allowed to play out and all of that, it's such a wholesome space, like it's healing and it's amazing. Um, And of course I would like to be someone who can help create such spaces. But you know, I'm really Pākehā, like I've had a real Pākehā training, upbringing, education. My voice, like, you know, is very Pākehā. My language, like, it's like my whole way of speaking is trained by books, English books. There's all this stuff I can't break up in myself. Mm. Um, so it is a desire, it's a reaching out and I have to as I reach towards um, wishing I could be more Maori not not just because that's a healthy place to be, but like politically for the country, we need to uh, create more Maori spaces and I want to be part of that. How can I do that? you know um But I have to ask myself as I go, well, what do you think Māori is that you're reaching for when you're writing? What is it? Like, are you reaching for a cliche? Are you part of the stereotyping actually as you go? Like, be careful. Um, Yeah, so I'm trying, I'm always trying to write towards, um, always trying to write towards many ways of being that I feel like I want to um, transform into. I'm reaching for transformation. I'm reaching for becoming. Um, but it can't be othering in the process. It cannot be othering. So it can't be becoming an idea you have of something. It's got to be a becoming that you actually are just on the ride with and you're letting it evolve itself and you're just there for the ride. So how, it, for me it's often like how do you crack it open so that I'm no longer doing it but I'm riding it um, as I'm writing it, (laughs) so that the writing is writing me into being, you know, um, I guess that's the, that's, you know, that's my longing, is for the writing to write me into being, and I think that, um, that is true, like, for oral, like, to bring it back to the oral as well, I feel like in in this the sung traditions and our, our chanting our waiata our whakapapa all of our many many literary oral traditions we're constantly singing ourselves into being uh and of course there's a huge memory job that's happening there um but there's a creation in the present moment every single time and in the present moment you create it new and live with your own modi or your you know your group's mauri, like for you so that it's real and relevant and alive again and it's now and it's for you and the same with um yeah the same with western literature or whatever like I can go over to Deleuze who talks about writing oh uh, you know he's got all this deterritorial body without organs and all this kind of stuff and then people who are doing literary readings of Deleuze talk about a voice without organs and you know he's trying to desubjectivate. like sorry sorry jargon but Desubjectivate, as he writes to write his old self away from his old self so he keeps the self out of writing but not to be objective and omniscient but to keep it wide open in terms of what you can be becoming what new that you're entering into um but it's not a new that's like out of nothing you know everything that you've brought to the table is part of this co-creation Um, But are you allowing any cliché, any fixed notion of self and other, like, are you letting them go? Are you letting the writing be, or the singing for that matter, be the full creative act that it can be to create us all anew for now?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, thank you so
1: much. Like the frog, when you play the frog, if you play it, I mean, I'm not playing it, I'm just scraping it, but it's an instrument, and when you put that into music... When you're playing music of course the sound becomes a whole new thing mm. every time it's played mm. in mm. an ensemble or assembly yeah
0: and i think this is the thing um that, that like this is where i'm at and what excites me i just um i've been reading a lot about the idea of decolonizing imagination and and there's a fantastic i think it's the introduction to a book claudian rankin wrote it with someone else i will remember later um but there's this wonderful thing about um you know I think sometimes there's this idea that writing should be done I don't know like I often think of the romantics you know like blah, you know like there it is you know like it whew, you know but what I'm really liking because I think it talks more to the way that I've always written, maybe, I don't know, is this idea of asking these questions as I'm writing, you know, being aware, being curious, finding it interesting that that's where I wanna go rather than the other. And in this introduction, it talks about why do I wanna write the other? Maybe investigating that part of me that is interested in writing outside my own experience. And maybe that's what I, you know, like that thing mm. you're saying, like writing about what I think I wanna lie about. Mm. Um, I just, I'm very excited about this idea that writing can be so, um, I'm, I'm thinking of words like deliberate and thought about and interrogated and slow is another mm-hmm. thing I'm really, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, you know, about how capitalism maybe wants things to mm-hmm. be faster, yes. but, you know, slow and leaky, you know, like won't fit in, mm-hmm. you know, um, easily saleable yeah, boxes yeah, and yeah. things like that definitely and not sellable. yeah <laughs> i just i just have appreciated this conversation so much mm-hmm. thank you so much thank you thank you so much for letting me rave
1: rave rave my ravings <laughs> uh, i just i love i love for your raving <laughs> thank you so much thank you Kyora.
0: okay um thanks for listening um so i've got some ideas um for a response to some of the ideas that came up in that conversation Um, I always think of these little bits at the end as a way to kind of process some of the ideas in an active way and in a way that kind of engages us creatively um, so that we can question some of the ideas and play around with some of the ideas and yeah so this is my idea for the conversation with Cassandra I was thinking that we could think about the languages that we come from and if we're writing in a different language, are there certain useful differences in these two languages that could be utilised as a constraint? So Cassandra um, gives the um, example of only using the letters um, available in Te Reo Māori to write an English um, piece. So um, what I was thinking is that We could maybe take a bit of time to research our origin languages and just see if there are differences between, and then write. You know, um, even if you are writing in English, there are older forms of English, um, you know, and and you can just keep what's that thing called? That's turtles all the way down. You can keep kind of digging until you get to a useful um, difference. Um, useful different expression of that um, that language so yeah um, yeah so that's the constraint or the the exercise or the response um, yeah um, find a difference in your origin language to the one that you're writing in and then see if you can um, give yourself a useful constraint and then write and see what it does to your brain yeah I tried it and I quite liked it it, it was very hard it, it wasn't easy Um, But it really made me look at um, what I was writing differently. I think it was a bit of an Aleppo moment, quite like that. Anyway, thank you very much.